Hello, and welcome to another lecture in the MSK Cornerstone course. This is a continuation of our sports medicine series. Today's talk is going to focus on ACL injury and treatment. We will briefly review key topics on the ACL structure and function, a typical history and presentation, followed by treatments and outcomes. I will stress the components found most frequently both in clinical practice as well as on qualification exams. So briefly, what is the ACL and how does it function? The ACL is a dense structure made up of 90% type 1 collagen and 10% type 3 collagen that runs from the posterior medial aspect of the lateral femoral condyle to a broad insertion just anterior in between the two tibial intercondylar eminences. On average, it is 33 millimeters long and 11 millimeters in diameter. It is made up of two bundles, the anteromedial and posterior lateral bundles. Remember that the posterior cruciate ligament has an anterior lateral bundle, or PAL, PAL, and that the ACL is just the opposite with an anterior medial and posterior lateral bundle. During the flexion, the anterior medial bundle gets tightened flexion, while the posterior lateral bundle gets tightened extension. The anterior medial bundle is the primary restraint to anterior translation of the tibia, while the posterior lateral bundle has a greater contribution to rotational stability. As a whole, the ACL provides the primary restraint against anterior translation of the tibia. However, it is also important to keep in mind the secondary functions it provides by limiting tibial rotation relative to the femur and varus and valgus angulation. The ACL receives its blood supply from the medial geniculate artery and is innervated by the posterior articular nerve, a branch of the tibial nerve. The native ACL has a strength of 2200 newtons against anterior translation. Alright, so that's what the ACL is and what it does. But who gets these injuries and how do they typically present? I think a good representative patient would be a 20-year-old female collegiate basketball player that experiences a painful pop and rapid swelling after landing awkwardly from a jump during a game. A couple key components can be drawn upon from that clinical vignette. Number one, ACL injuries are more common in female athletes than male at a ratio of 4.5 to 1. There are several hypotheses as to why this may be the case. One possible explanation is that females have different neuromuscular coordination patterns than males. They tend to be more quad-dominant with relative hamstring weakness. This may predispose to increased anterior translation force as the quadriceps fire. Also, when landing from a jump, females tend to land with more knee extension and greatest valgus load across the knee joint. This may have the greatest contribution to increased risk and has been a testable point in the past. This is also the rationale for ACL injury prevention programs, which emphasize proprioception training and knee flexor strengthening to balance the quad strength ratio. Furthermore, females have anatomic variants, including smaller femoral notches and an increased valgus alignment of the lower extremity, which may predispose to injury. New areas of research have identified that women with a collagen 5A1 gene have reduced risk of ACL rupture. Alright, back to our clinical vignette. A lot can be gathered from the history as well. A non-contact pivoting injury, a painful pop, and an immediate effusion all point to a likely diagnosis of an ACL injury. In fact, in athletes presenting with acute hemarthrosis, about 70% had sustained an ACL injury. So we have our female patient, a painful pop, and an effusion. What else will we see? Well, she'll likely come into the office with a quad avoidance gait, she'll have a knee immobilizer on from the emergency room, and some incomprehensible 1.5 Tesla MRI covered in motion artifact, and you can't make out a thing. On exam, she'll have a significant effusion. In the office, the assessment can get a bit difficult secondary to guarding from the pain. The most sensitive exam finding is your Lachman test. With the knee fully relaxed and flexed to 30 degrees, the tibia is translated anteriorly while the femur is stabilized. The Lachman is graded based upon the degree of translation with grades 1 through 3, 
with three to five millimeters, five to 10 millimeters, and greater than 10 millimeters representing the individual grade. These are further subtyped onto whether or not an endpoint can be appreciated, A being a firm endpoint and B having no endpoint. The anterior drawer is another common exam, this time the knee being flexed to 90 degrees and the degree of anterior translation assessed. The pivot shift is another test that is very useful to assess both pre and post reconstruction as its resolution after reconstruction is associated with better patient outcomes. The pivot shift test is performed with the patient completely relaxed and typically performed with the patient under anesthesia in the OR prior to prepping and draping. A valgus and internal rotation force is applied to the fully extended knee which will anterolaterally sublux the tibia on the femur. While holding this force, the knee is then flexed past 30 degrees. So again, the initial stages of knee flexion, the tibia is anterolaterally subluxed against the distal femur. With further flexion of the knee, approximately past 30 degrees, the iliotibial band goes from a knee extensor to a flexor, and the tibial anterolateral subluxation reduces or shifts back into place. Okay, so after our history and physical examination, it's time to look at some imaging studies to confirm what we likely suspect. So the first imaging study we'll order and assess will be plain radiographs of the knee. In all likelihood, these will come back normal. Occasionally, however, a small avulsion fracture of the lateral tibial plateau can be appreciated. This is known as the Sagan fracture and is pathognomonic for an ACL injury. As you would suspect, an MRI is incredibly useful for confirming the diagnosis. Bone bruises, which are essentially trabecular microfractures, occur in more than half of all ACL injuries and are characteristically located on the middle third of the lateral femoral condyle and the posterior third of the lateral tibial plateau. For memorization purposes, just remember that many ACL-related events occur laterally. During the pivot shift, the tibia is anterolaterally subluxed, the Sagan fracture with a lateral tibial plateau capsular revulsion, and the bone bruises on the lateral femoral condyle. Also, lateral meniscal tears are more common in acute ACL injuries than medial meniscal tears. So everything occurs laterally. On MRI, it is also essential to assess the status of the meniscus. So just as I mentioned, remember that lateral meniscal tears are more common in acute ACL tears, whereas in chronic ACL-deficient knees, medial meniscal tears become much more common. This makes sense if you think back to the biomechanics lecture, in that the primary secondary stabilizer to the anterior translation of the tibia is the posterior horn of the medial meniscus. So without an ACL, the posterior horn of the medial meniscus is seeing a lot of stress to prevent anterior translation of the tibia. Okay, so we've confirmed our diagnosis of an ACL tear. The next step will be to determine how we'll manage the patient. For comfort, some patients with particularly large intense effusions may benefit from an aspiration to draw off some of the excess hemarthrosis. The next step is to get the patient moving. Most surgeons like to see almost normal range of motion with particular attention to achieving full extension before surgical intervention. Immobilizing the patient is not indicated and may increase the risk of postoperative stiffness. Now, is there a role for non-operative management of ACL injuries? And the answer is absolutely. Particularly in low-activity, low-demand patients with a relatively stable knee, controversy exists as to what role ACL reconstruction plays in the development of arthritis after an ACL injury. There is, however, an increased incidence of complex meniscal tears and chondral injuries with chronic ACL deficiency. So why not do an ACL repair? For any medical students listening, don't say the patient had an ACL repair on patient presentations. We do reconstructions. Repairs fail. In essence, the torn ACL stumps form scar tissue. Myofibroblasts coat the end of the stumps, inhibiting any ability for the ACL to heal into a solid, durable structure. Now, there is an abundance of research that's been done with regard to ACL reconstruction technique and graft selection, 
which of course carries over into the question writing for both the in-training exam and board exams. In fact, it is the number one tested principle in the sports medicine subspecialty section. So therefore, we'll go into some detail over the relevant techniques, graphs, and complications. So who does get an ACL reconstruction? There are various treatment algorithms to consider. However, the bottom line is a younger, more active patient will likely benefit from reconstruction. Age is not necessarily a contraindication either, as some patients over 40 remain incredibly active and would also likely benefit from reconstruction. Prior to getting into techniques, there are some issues that need to be considered at the time of surgery. Number one, is there any other associated ligamentous injury? In a multi-ligamentous knee injury where the posterior lateral corner is injured, many surgeons prefer to address the posterior lateral corner as a first stage procedure and then come back and do the ACL reconstruction or address it concurrently with the ACL reconstruction. In an injury in which the MCL has also been injured, most surgeons prefer to allow the MCL to heal, thereby normalizing the varus valgus stability, which will then protect the reconstruction. If there is any repairable meniscal tear, it should be repaired simultaneously with the ACL reconstruction, as they have been shown to have an increased rate of healing when done concurrently. Also, the patient needs to be assessed for any limb malalignment. If there is any coronal or sagittal malalignment, it should be addressed with a high tibial osteotomy prior to or at the time of surgery. So now let's talk about reconstruction techniques. There are a variety of techniques and many of them work very well. I'm going to discuss the basic fundamentals in which most of the techniques converge, which have appeared many times on, as testable material. We will focus on single bundle reconstruction techniques. Double bundle reconstruction has been shown to more closely reapproximate the native knee kinematics. However, there has been no proven clinical benefit at this time. The first technical consideration we'll discuss is tunnel position. First of all, tunnel malposition is the number one reason that an ACL reconstruction fails. Remember that because they love that question. Tunnel malposition is the number one reason ACLs fail. With regard to the femoral tunnel in the sagittal plane along the condyle, it should be fairly posterior with approximately a 1 to 2 millimeter bone bridge from the posterior cortex. A tunnel that is placed too anterior may result in a knee that has tightened flexion and loosened extension. The key is to visualize and confirm that the tunnel lies posterior to residence ridge. In the coronal plane, it should appear fairly low and horizontal at approximately 10 to 2 o'clock position, depending on if this is a right or left knee respectively. Historically, grafts were placed without regard to the verticality in the notch. These vertical tunnel positions, think about 12 o'clock position, will lead to rotational instability, a persistently positive pivot shift exam, and a clinically unstable knee. Femoral tunnel trajectory is particularly important when inserting a screw for fixation because you want to avoid any unnecessary graft screw fixation divergence. Graft screw divergence is the difference between the angle of the graft and the angle of the screw being inserted. If both are inserted from the same portal, then the divergence will essentially be zero. If, however, the femoral tunnel was drilled through the tibial tunnel and the fixation screw was placed from the anterior medial portal, then some element of divergent may exist. If the divergence is greater than 30 degrees, the risk of failure and loss of fixation increases. This can be avoided with the use of guide wires. All right, let's move on now to the tibial tunnel. The tunnel aperture should approximate the native ACL footprint. Referencing, the PCL has shown to be the most consistent anatomic landmark. The center of the tunnel should lie 10 millimeters in front of the anterior border of the PCL insertion. If using a lateral meniscus, it should lie next to the posterior border of the anterior horn of the lateral meniscus. And if you're using the tibial spine, it should lie slightly anterior to the peak of the medial spine. 
If the tunnel is positioned too anteriorly, you may develop a knee that is tight in flexion and impinge with the roof of the notch in extension, possibly inhibiting full extension. If the tunnel is too posterior, the ACL may impinge on the PCL. With regard to the coronal plane, the entry point of the tibia should always be midway between the posterior medial edge of the tibia and the tibial tubercle. Now let's briefly discuss graft selection and some factors that may cause a surgeon and a patient to prefer one versus another. We'll talk about the most common three encountered in practice and on exams. Bone patella tendon bone autograft, quadruple hamstring autograft, and allograft. The graft most commonly to be considered the gold standard graft is bone patella tendon bone autograft. It has the longest history of use and shows the fastest incorporation with bone-to-bone healing, which is ideal in a population that wishes rapid return back to sport. It does, however, have its drawbacks in that up to 30% of patients will complain of some post-operative anterior knee pain. Other complications to consider are the possibilities of patella fracture or patella tendon rupture, though these are incredibly rare. Patella fracture typically occurs in the post-operative period around 8 to 12 weeks. If you suspect a patella tendon disruption, look for patella alta on a lateral radiograph. Another very commonly chosen graft option is the quadruple hamstring autograft. This also has the benefit of being the patient's own tissue, a decreased incidence of anterior knee pain, and the best performance on loading-to-failure tests. Load-to-failure tests for hamstring autograft comes in at approximately 4,000 newtons, where bone patella tendon bone is 2,600 newtons, and the native ACL clocks in at around 1,700 newtons. However, hamstring autograft is also not without its own complications. Sometimes the hamstrings are just not large enough to achieve an adequate graft size and will require augmentation with allograft tendon. Its fixation strength requires soft tissue to bone healing, which is not as rapid as bone to bone healing, and the graft is fixed at a distance from the tunnel aperture, which may lead to windshield wiper effect and tunnel widening with repeated motion. Finally, let's talk about allograft. Most surgeons will choose a bone patella tendon bone allograft. This is useful in revision cases when previous sources of autograft may have been used. There is no donor site morbidity and surgical times tend to be shorter. There has been shown to be an increased rupture rate in a younger athletic population, and there is the theoretical risk of viral transmission. However, this is incredibly rare on the order of 1 to 1 million for HIV. All right, so that's a brief summary of the typical grafts used by most surgeons. When encountering a pediatric patient with open growth plates, some additional factors need to be taken into consideration prior to reconstruction. The younger the patient or the less skeletally mature, they are at an increased risk for physial growth arrest or disturbance. Patient maturity can be assessed via the chronologic method, 14 for girls and 16 for boys for maturity, Tanner staging, or a skeletal survey. We'll talk more about these three methods during the pediatric lectures. Females typically reach skeletal maturity within 12 months from the onset of menarche. Keep this in mind as it has been tested in the past. Surgeons will choose between various transficeal or physeal sparing techniques. Both techniques have shown good results with no difference in growth disturbances. A few key concepts that need to be followed to lower the risk of physeal injury are 1. First cross the physis in a more vertical fashion versus an oblique fashion to minimize the surface area of the physis that gets disrupted. Do not cross the physis with bone or an interference screw, which may close the physis. Instead, use soft tissue graft. Avoid high-speed reaming, which may cause unnecessary damage to the physeal tissue adjacent to the tunnel. And choose a smaller tunnel size. There's no need to go larger than 8 millimeters. The post-operative rehabilitation protocol is of utmost importance to ensure an optimal outcome and has been the subject of test questions in the past. While protocols do vary, a few basic tenets should be followed. First, 
No exercise or motion should place undue stress on the graft. The idea is to achieve good motion and strength at appropriate time intervals. During the immediate postoperative period, it is critical to stress the importance of achieving full extension via passive motion. Patients may bear weight and are generally locked in extension in a knee brace during weight bearing. They may perform isometric hamstring, quad, and closed chain exercises. Closed chain exercises are those in which the terminal limb is fixed in space. In open chain exercises, the limb is free. An example of a closed chain exercise would be squats or leg press. Open chain would be quad extensions or hamstring curls. Open chain quadricep strengthening should be avoided during the early postoperative period. Lastly, let's go over some of the complications of ACL reconstruction. As with any surgery, infection is of concern. Staph aureus is the most common organism, and an infection usually takes hold within the first two weeks postoperatively. Following aspiration and culture to identify the organism and choose appropriate antibiotics, the patient should be taken emergently to the operating room for arthroscopic irrigation and debridement. With multiple irrigation and debridements, an appropriate course of antibiotics, generally six weeks in length, there's a chance that the graft can be salvaged. Another concern more specific to ACL reconstruction is postoperative stiffness or arthrofibrosis. Prevention is the best way to avoid this. This means achieving full motion preoperatively, avoiding operating too soon after injury when they are acutely inflamed, and aggressively controlling postoperative inflammation over utmost importance. If the patient is falling behind early with their motion and is less than three months, then they may improve with physical therapy alone. If they are beyond three months, then a lysis of adhesion and manipulation under anesthesia may be indicated. If the patient lacks terminal extension, then the patient needs to be evaluated with an MRI to look for the presence of a cyclops lesion, which is a disorder in which scar tissue forms anteriorly in the knee joint. Infrapatellar contraction syndrome is also associated with ACL reconstruction and will present as decreased patellar mobility, decreased active and passive range of motion, and patella baja on lateral radiographs. Postoperative nerve pain and numbness have also been documented. The infrapatellar branch of the saphenous nerve crosses from medial to lateral below the joint line and its small sensory fibers may frequently be cut when making the incision for patella tendon graft harvest, leading to postoperative inferolateral knee numbness. Furthermore, the saphenous nerve is at risk as it lies between layers 1 and 2 with the hamstring tendons and may be injured during hamstring harvest. Knee flexion and hip external rotation during harvest may be helpful to avoid any inadvertent injury. All right, so that goes over most of the testable concepts for ACL injury and reconstruction. Remember that ACL reconstruction is the number one tested topic in sports medicine, so time spent studying for it will not be wasted. Again, thanks for listening, and please leave any questions, comments, or concerns. Thanks.